Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness, as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm thrilled to announce that I'm joined by the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and one of America's leading voices covering issues of race and justice, Wesley Lowry. Wesley has served as a national correspondent for the Washington Post and an on-air correspondent for CBC News and 60 Minutes. And he's the author of a new book, American White Lash, in which he charts the return of this blood-stained trend, showing how the forces of white power retaliated against Obama's victory and both profited from and helped to propel the rise of Donald Trump. Drawing on gripping first-hand reporting, he investigates four incidents of white violence since 2008, which have arguably come to shape our current climate. Wesley, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So first off, tell me, for those of us who are not in the U.S. right now, how is America doing? (laughs) Well, I I feel like we're probably going through it a little bit, uh, it's fair to say. Um, It's, you know, a real time of tumult and tension. And, you know, as always, we're approaching another presidential election cycle. And those are moments where I think a lot of our tensions really come to the fore, uh, where we come together as a country to really openly debate who we want to be and who we are. And, you know, we're at a moment in a time when we have really divergent ideas of who we should be and who we are and what we should aspire to. And so this is certainly a time at least politically and socially, where I think there's a lot of tension and a lot of anxiety. And so we, whenever we hear analysis of the U.S., the the, the term division, it's a divided nation. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that the term you would use? And are those divides um, you know, like primarily along racial lines, in your view? Well, I think that the key divide is a question of who we are and who we want to be who we consider Americans, right? And there is a racialized ethnic undercurrent and underpinning to that question, right? Um, It's not just race, right? We see a lot of tension around whether it be how we should teach our children, questions of gender and sexuality. Um, But at the core, it's, it's a question of who are we, right? What does it mean to be an American? Who should we be looking out for? What version of our history should we tell ourselves? Um, and what's the future we should aspire to, right? And in the American question, at the core, there's always going to be this question of what people look like, where they come from, um, and, and who gets to claim the mantle of being an American and who doesn't. And so I think that that um, unquestionably race is at the center of that. 
And that's so interesting because I have, I mean, those are all issues that are, you know, very prominent here in Europe as well. I mean, I'm speaking to you here from the UK where issues of national identity and the kind of delineation of the borders of that identity are increasingly fraught. Um, and that's, you know, as part, I would say, of a wider trend across the European continent of, you know, more and more vocal and mainstream far right voices um, able to uh, center uh, what might previously have been quite fringe ideas and theories. Um, and I'd always thought, you know, having lived in the US as, as a foreigner and, you know, please do correct me because I'm d definitely looking at this as an outsider looking in, but I was always thought of America as somewhere where once you kind of, you know, pledge pledge you know your your loyalty to the to, to the flag and and um you know you you adopt the american identity and you're naturalized you know almost it, it almost felt as if anyone could become an american and there was some sort of real pride previously in the idea of having um hyphenated identities that all were part of the tapestry am i just delusional did that exist <laughs> well at least that was the promise it was the idea right yeah. but i think that what we see at the core is this question of who gets to become an american who gets to live out that promise right that what we see right now is a country that is this mixture of all types of different people from all types of different places who come pledge allegiance to the flag take on american identity but the question becomes how many more people get to follow that pathway, right? So you look at a lot of the people, most of the people, almost all the people who claim American identity, right? Almost none of us are from uh, America originally, right? That our indigenous population uh, makes up a, a very, very small percentage of Americans. Almost everyone is uh, the descendant of someone who's immigrated to the United States of America or in the case of African-Americans, people who who's, uh, predecessors were enslaved in the United States of America, right? But what we're seeing now are the children, the offspring of some of those immigrants who are deciding that other people, other groups shouldn't be allowed to follow that same path. Basically, we should pull the ladder up or we should build the wall and we shouldn't let anyone else in, that the promise of American citizenry is something that should now be limited, right? Mm -hmm. It's unsurprising that we're seeing this type of tension and back and forth in this moment, in part because, you know, in the mid 2000s, in addition to the election of a black president, what we see are the census forecasts that for the first time project an America that would be majority racial or ethnic minority, right? The idea that the actual face of the average American would look different or be different. And, mm -hmm. and I think that it's very clear that that has really propelled a lot of the anxiety and tension that you have this white American uh, population that feels as if its way of life is being threatened in some way. Mm, and I really, we will definitely be coming back to this um, kind of demographic shift. Uh, you know, it, of course, here in Europe, we're also uh, very much seeing that, uh, as you were speaking, and uh, the idea of kind of pulling up the ladder behind you, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, places like Luton here in the UK, where, you know, a majority of the population uh, is of uh, South Asian uh, ancestry, and yet voted, you know, very strongly in favor of Brexit, which was, you know, viewed by many 
people um, as, as very much connected to pulling up the, the ladder behind you, as you put it. And this fear of the demographic shift, of course, is, is key uh, in a lot of the discourse that we're hearing, you know, the idea of the, the great replacement, um, you know, from Renaud Camus in France has, has, you know, integrated very mainstream conversations, even in the French elections. So I, I want to definitely come back to kind of the ways in which previously fringe ideas have now become center mainstream conversations um, entertained with the seriousness we previously uh, approached to other uh, sort of mainstream topics. Um, but I, but I, before we get to that, I do just want to ask you uh, a more personal question about what propelled you to write the book. Um, because I know what goes into writing a book, um, because I haven't written one yet. And uh, because also I understand that when we write books that you know, there's usually something that it touches deep inside us. So can I ask you a little bit about why with this was a book that you needed to write? Of course. So no, I'm happy to talk about that. I mean, I think that for me, obviously, as a black journalist who has covered issues of race in America for a long time, I'm always attempting to think about how does the story of our nation continuing to grapple with its history and to make up for in many ways it's kind of original, one of its original sense, which is the sense of creating a racial caste system in our country and creating those inequities, building them into our laws. Where are we in terms of our reckoning with that, right? And I see that that big story being a big part of my body of work in general. And so as I do that, um, I'm always thinking about how does that story change season to season. Um, and I remember when I published my first book, They Can't Kill Us All, which was a look at the rise in the Black Lives Matter movement in the early years and what it was like to cover that as a black journalist. I was um, thinking about what comes next, right? It, that book published in November 2016, a week after the election of Donald Trump. And so I was thinking what comes next? What's the next story? What's the next chapter? What's the next season? And I was sitting there, and as I was thinking about that question, I was watching these stories in the headlines. I was watching um, and reading about cases of you know, a Muslim woman attacked on the train in Portland, or these white supremacists showing up at the inauguration and, and doing Nazi salutes, right? Um, black men being attacked at, at the train station or, or, or finally, you know, the rallies at Charlottesville. And it became very clear to me that a big part of this next chapter, this next season in this story, was going to not be the rise of the anti-racist movement, but rather the rise and the empowerment, the emboldenedness of the white supremacist movement. And so I decided that what I wanted to do during the Trump years and the way I was going to try to spend the Trump years was to see to what extent I could help tell that story, the story of uh, the people who um, felt emboldened by that presidency, um, as well as the people whose lives were imperiled by the rhetoric of our political moment. And so that meant immigrants, refugees, black Americans, Jewish Americans, Muslim Americans, Sikh Americans, um, and to try to grapple with what all of this means, um, that if we're going to live through a time of white grievance and uh, increased white racialized violence, that that 
someone should write down some of the stories of the people who fall victim to that era. And so I figured to the best of my ability, I would try to do that. And so um, that kind of uh, the, the the sort of response, the white supremacist response you describe, um, is is that white lash? I mean, how did, what is a white lash? And are, are there other examples previously in history of a white lash? Sure. So what I like to think about in terms of a white lash is is a time in which or a moment in which the American white ethnic population. And now to be clear, that is a population that definitionally changes over time, right, as it expands to include additional people, um, in which it feels itself threatened by the perception of Black advancement, right? So we see any number of waves of this. We see this um, following emancipation and during Reconstruction, in which uh, the, in, in which the white population of America uh, really violently thrashes back um, at the idea of multiracial democracy. We see this amid the civil rights movement um, in which we see uh, a, a violent backlash to the perception um, and to the reality that now for the first time black Americans are entitled to full uh, citizenry rights following the Voting Rights Act. And then, and then we see this in our current era um, in response to the election of a black president, as well as to the, the browning and the demographic change of our country, right? That that what we see are this the rise in um, white racialized violence. We see a rise in agitation and grievance among the white population writ large, um, and we see a success in this type of demonizing uh, rhetoric of people of color, of immigrants, of refugees, and this rallying around white racial identity, right? And so it's something we've been living through in this moment, right? And that in many ways is embodied in the election of an openly nativist candidate like Donald Trump to become the president in response to a, a black president. Um, but then we also see it um, within the population itself, um, this this very agitated uh, posture from many white Americans that expresses itself not just along racial lines, but also you know also presents itself when it comes to other types of change, right? The rise of kind of a reactionary conservative movement, which is currently one of the biggest, most powerful movements in America. And um, on this, I mean, you mentioned the sentence, whiteness being threatened by black advancement. Um, I, in, the, in this context, do you understand whiteness as white supremacy or is it something else? And I'm, I'm curious to kind of unpack that idea because I think that on one hand, you could say that, of course, um, whiteness is threatened by black advancement, because if whiteness is white supremacy, then absolutely the idea of a call for equality threatens it and challenges it and, and really ought to, frankly. But um, has that been kind of somehow merged with the idea that people racialized as white are somehow threatened by it inherently? I think that that is the belief, right? I think that there is there is a, a sense among people, and look, and, and this is not always a fully articulated 
ideology, right? But in a lot of ways, people are operating off of vibes, like they're operating off of their their sense of what's going on. But it's this belief that um, it's a very zero sum us versus them. What is good for someone else must be bad for me, right? Mm-hmm. There's only so much advancement or equality or power to go along, right? Or to go around. And so if another group gains 5%, that must mean that I am losing 5%. Yeah. Um, and so we see that and we see that play out. Um, and we see that play out time and time again, right? That it, it cuts, like I said, I think it cuts in a few directions. I think it's unquestionably true, right? That the advancement of people of color um, diminishes the power of the of a white supremacist system as well as allows for new challenges to a white supremacist system and that the people who are the beneficiaries of such system would feel that right but i think there's at a much more even personal and less systems and structures way i think it is it is more about the average person who may not see themselves as benefiting necessarily from a white supremacist system, right? I think a lot of people who benefit from it don't believe that they are benefiting from some type of inequality, right? Right, But rather that just believe very quickly that they are now losing in some way, right? That Mm -hmm. advancement of, of other people or the equality received by other people feels like a loss to them, even if it's an evening out of, of outcomes. Mm. Yes, I think there is some kind of quote I've definitely seen going around something like, you know, uh, justice will feel like injustice or something to those who have become used to it or something. I'm I'm completely butchering the quote. If you know it, feel free to correct. That's a pretty good one. We, we yeah. should, should steal that and use it for ourselves now. I will. Yeah, I will definitely try and <laughs> claim that one. But 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 certainly, yes, I think I mean, obviously, the 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 issue obviously of of operating within a white supremacist world is that particularly if you're white that um the appearance of the ways in which the system favors you um isn't always apparent and so um it's interesting or at least apparent to you <laughs> uh or to me in this case um but but uh, but uh, so in in that sense i think the idea that there is uh, a fear of something being lost. Do you think that there maybe hasn't been a strong enough case for what is to be gained? Or do you think that there is an inherent um, sort of um, process that white people have to go through in in recognizing that, yes, this is going to have to be a loss in some terms because the the gains were in and of themselves uh, achieved through not only unlawful but deeply unethical and problematic means well i think that i think that both things are true right i i I don't necessarily think that to create a world that's more equal and equitable that we have to perceive it as a loss necessarily right but i do think that people who are self-interested which is to say all people right are are thinking first and foremost about themselves right the there is an inherent selfishness in the human condition uh where what we're worried about is how this is going to affect us our family our hometown our the people we love and care about right and that while many of us love the idea theoretically of a world of equity and equality right our first concern is is this going to take food out of my child's mouth or opportunity away from them is this going to make my life harder And, and i think that um 
I, I certainly think that there's a labor, an intellectual, philosophical labor to be done in explaining and talking and grappling with that, right? Um, and grappling with people who reasonably believe or are concerned that they are going to end up being the loser in some way here. And so I do think that there's there's a conversation to be had there. I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily a, uh, well, you know, just too bad for you all, <laughs> right? I, I think that there is some some real earnest conversation to be had there. In the book, you quote um, a fascinating poll of Americans on how they believe racial issues have changed in America since the 1950s. And I wasn't hugely shocked to discover that white people thought there had been more progress than black people had. Um, but the fact that that white people believe, and, and I quote, that the country was afflicted with anti-white bias and that that anti-white bias uh, is believed to be the more prevalent form of racial prejudice today. How do you make sense of that? I just, you know, I, it doesn't surprise me, but I think that it is foundational to our understanding of the country as it exists today, right? We are a majority white country, and the majority of white people believe they are a discriminated class of people. And once you understand that, I think a lot of our political and social dynamics just make a lot more sense, right? <laughs> when well, you certainly, but yeah, I mean, the, it's the, the idea that as a majority, you believe yourself to be discriminated against. I mean, what other majority could make such a claim? Well, I think that, but I think that that's, it goes back to the, the quote that we were both struggling with earlier to remember correctly, right? It's this idea that when you used to have 100% of the power, that suddenly to only have 95% of the power, all you can focus on is the 5% loss, right? Not the 95% you retain. So when you have a country that is in so many ways, certainly racially, so bent in one direction, any progress in the other direction feels like a massive loss to the people who who used to hold all the power and all the control. I think what's also true, and we know this, right, is that people's perceptions are often deeply divorced from any actual reality. Yet in a democracy, we have to deal with people's perceptions, right? Um, it doesn't really matter that uh, that the white people still control most of the money and the power and the, the institutions in our country. The fact that they feel as if they are threatened is as important as, as anything else, at least in terms of understanding what's happening in this moment. Um, how would you say that the election of Obama has played into these narratives of racial progress? Yep, hold on. Let's see if I can fix that. <laughs> Try that again. Yeah, so I just wanted to ask you about how the election of Obama played into white narratives about racial progress. And I'm particularly thinking here of um, to what extent did, um, you know, there was a sort of almost self-congratulatory um, vibe, you know, after Obama's election, like, oh, look at us, you know, uh, you know, obviously many white people voted for Obama, you know, how, how liberal and open um, liberal needs, needs to be unpacked, but maybe not right now, um, you know, uh, and, and so that that obviously uh, represented something to white America, right? What what did Obama's election uh, and the response, white people's response to Obama's election, what does that tell us about 
the narrative white America tells itself? Certainly. Well, I think for a lot of people, right, and, and, and I think that not even not even to racialize this for a second, right, when we think about politics, right, because Barack Obama is obviously a partisan political figure. When we think about politics and we think about elections, very often it's said that we vote for candidates who reflect back to us the world that we hope that we live in, right? That they, mm-hmm. they say things about ourselves that we want to be true, mm-hmm. right? And so when you look at a candidate like Barack Obama, this was a candidate, not just a, a candidate uh, who's black, right? But who spoke in a sweeping rhetoric about the greatness of America, about our ability to overcome uh, the depths of our history and, and our worst societal sins, right? Who reflected a world where by voting for him or supporting him, you could endorse the idea of America as ascendant and, and, and greater than its worst sins and the worst things it's ever done. And in some ways, on the one hand, that's a remarkably effective political messaging campaign, right? Um, yeah. Delivered by one of the most talented politicians ever. <laughs> but secondarily, though, it also creates a permission structure of of people who are now saying and endorsing through their vote that, well, because we can elect a black man to be president, it means we have overcome our racism. Mm-hmm. It means we've solved the problem. It means we fixed it. See, Barack Obama's the president. And and I think that it also created a defense of people to stop having to interrogate themselves. I mean, there's the joke and it, it appeared in Jordan Peele's Get Out, right? The idea of the white liberal who suggests that they cannot be racist because they voted for Obama twice. Oh, of course. Yes. Right. I, and, I and it's that, think, yeah. And it's, it's like I have a black friend. His name is Barack Obama. <laughs> right. Like, yes. And so therefore, now all any other prejudices I have must be okay. Right. My feelings about my feelings about Muslims or refugees or immigration. Right. Or my feelings that it becomes this type of calling card Mm. uh, that it must be okay because clearly I cannot be racially prejudiced because I voted for a black man. And so I think that that interplay, there have been studies that have been done. I know they've been done on gender where they look at the levels of misogyny in societies that elect women to historic positions. And they actually have found and measured some cases an increase <laughs> in misogyny among the populace after a historic election, with the theory being in part that it provides a permission for people to now express themselves in these ways because, well, I can't be, I can't be a sexist. I voted for, for her to be the prime minister or the president. And, and I would suggest having lived through it in the States, I, I would not be surprised if the studies showed something very similar in the United States as it related to the election of a black president. And so to connect that then to um, Donald Trump, who then, you know, represents, would would you say the white lash against the uh, Barack Obama's election? Well, I think unquestionably. I mean, look, what, what we know, what is obviously true about President Trump, former President Trump, right, is that this is someone whose introduction to the political scene was to call into question the Americanness of the first black president, who made his chief campaign promise to keep 
brown people out of the country. He was going to build a wall on the southern border. His first act in office was to ban much of the Muslim world from entering the United States of America. Right. This was someone who spoke an explicitly nativist rhetoric about immigrants, refugees, someone who fanned uh, the flames of reactionary concerns about violence and about anti-racist movements, right? Someone who played to the most base prejudices of white America. Um, he was very clearly and very obviously elected as a response to um, to the black presidency and his movement, the movement that 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 propels him, is very clearly and very obviously a response to a black presidency. Mm. And so where do you find yourself now in 2023? Um, you know, some suggestions you could be headed for Ron DeSantis. Um, <laughs> uh, is it from the, you know, frying pan into the fire? Um, is it is it white lash mark two? What's your analysis of, um, you know, what that help? You know, what a, I mean, do you think this is a likely future that you're facing? I'm talking sure. about a Ron DeSantis pre- presidency, obviously. Well, look, I think that I think that we're still in this moment, right? I think we're still in this moment where the most powerful movement in our country is a nativist movement of American white lash, right? Whether that is channeled in, um, whether that's channeled in someone like former President Trump, who is still, you know, by and far the most likely person to be the Republican nominee, whether that's channeled in people who are attempting to pick up the mantle from him, whether that's someone like Ron DeSantis or or others, right? That what we still see in this moment is a hyper-mobilized, hyper-powerful political movement on our political right that at its core is nativist and reactionary in response to societal and cultural changes whether that be the change in demographics of the country, whether it be the advancements in terms of ideas of gender, sexuality, race, right? That this idea of seizing onto the country and not just keeping it where it is, but pushing it backwards in response and in rejection of these types of societal changes and advances that we're seeing. And it just, like I said, that movement very clearly and very obviously is what drove President Trump into office. And and remains in this moment, I think, among the most powerful movements in our country. You say in the book on that subject that the data suggests that we're living through uh, a moment of heightened white racist aggression in which the nation's violent underbelly finds itself equal parts frightened and emboldened. Um, I want to ask you about both of those ideas, that, that there is fear underlying this and, you know, whether... You know, when you use the word fear, is there a part of you calling for a response that recognizes it as fear, which is very difficult when fear is expressed as mm-hmm. violence? Um, and then also, you know, emboldened. I mean, who is emboldening the far right? Because a lot of people would say the mainstream media, you know, of which I'm a part, of which you're a part, have been large contributories to that problem. Yeah, well, I certainly, I certainly think that the mainstream media plays a, a role in the way that at times we normalize, platform, or otherwise fail in our responsibility to interrogate these types of movements. But the way I think about it is, 
to simplify that even further, right? We have, we America is a majority white country or white identifying country, um, and we are in a moment where white Americans are particularly aggrieved, anxious, and fearful. And in that moment, we see a white supremacist movement, right? And when I say that, I mean actual avowed racists, not people who just hold the prejudices that anyone might hold, right? But people who who have taken on an ideology and a belief system of racial white racial superiority, of um, a desire to live in a white ethnostate, who are eager and excited to try to take advantage of the fact that they have so many more people who may be susceptible to their proselytizing in this moment. And so at a time when we see our mainstream politics engaging in dangerous reactionary rhetoric, there are actual white supremacists out there who are very happy to have a bunch of white Americans Googling crime statistics or or being primed with racist rhetoric around immigrants or refugees because they know that it's going to make those people more likely to join their violent movements. And so what ends up happening is we end up seeing increasing levels of violence, increasing numbers of these attacks carried out not always by longtime white supremacists, but in some cases by people who are relatively new recruits to these movements and who end up there via our mainstream politics. So I would love to come back to that notion of fear um, in a sec, but I, I, I guess I also wanted to ask you as a journalist who works in the media, obviously, um, what are we in the media doing wrong and what could we do, be doing better in how we confront the rise of nativism nativist rhetoric and and the, and with that the mainstreaming of of violent ideas well first and foremost i think you have to be honest about the reality that that's happening in the first place i think that sometimes we're too cute by half we like to pretend as if it's not clear what's going on. What could possibly be motivating these people? Why, why uh, are people attracted to Donald Trump? I mean, all oh, I thought these Tea Party people cared about the about the uh, deficit, right? We play these like two cute games, even though it's extremely clear. We also pretend as if there's no precedent, right? That we see in this movement that selected Donald Trump and and that has supported him, we see echoes of the rise of the political clan in the 1920s. We see echoes of other moments of white lash, and yet too often in the media we pretend as if our contemporary world lives without uh, any kind of historical context, right? Even though the historical context is pretty clear uh, in terms of helping us understand what's happening right now. And so I think bringing more expertise, bringing more history, bringing more clarity about what's happening when people literally tell us who they are, pretending as if they have not told us is, is probably not the right way to go. But I also think we have to understand, and, and I get at this a bit in the book and we talk about this in the book, right? We have the evidence to make clear that when we platform racist rhetoric, that it increases racist violence. When we allow someone to go on our air or be in our pages, saying reactionarily racist things about immigrants, about refugees, about black people, about brown people, about Jewish people. We, we understand that that 
leads to increased levels of animus and violence. And yet, what we see time and time again is this argument from the media of, well, what are we supposed to do? Not give Donald Trump a live microphone? And the answer is yes, we are not. We should not give Donald Trump a live microphone. That's not a call to not cover him, not interview him, not talk to him, right? But the sense of there is a level of responsibility. When you allow someone to come on our air to say things that are not true or that demonize or demagogue specific sets of people, right, we know that increases a likelihood of this type of violence. And I think too often we retreat into this kind of free speech absolutist, well, what are we supposed to do? Everyone gets to say whatever they want, even though we understand and we know that that's not actually the case, that we curate as members of the media. We don't just put anyone on television or just anyone in the newspaper. We understand that that our platform and that our words matter. And that if you put dangerous ideas in the newspaper, those dangerous ideas are going to spread. And yet, what we allowed was a candidate and a movement, basically 24-7 access to all of our platforms to say deranged racist things for years. And now we wonder why this person has been able to build a, a movement and why violence is increasing. And so I think that we have an obligation to be much more responsible with what we allow on our airwaves, with how we frame and discuss these issues, because we know that there is a real harm that can be done when we allow um, our platforms to be used to spread uh, this type of uh, this type of rhetoric. So I completely hear you on on all of that, but I just for the sake of the um, discussions I'm privy to, and I'm sure you have too, but maybe our audiences aren't aware of kind of how some of these conversations happen in the editorial room. Um, and, I, and I'm sure you've had this put to you, but um, so, you know, what is what is the, the solution is we don't platform people. What about if that person is winning an election? What if that person is by far the most popular candidate? Um, uh, what if that candidate's ideas are um, you know, those speaking to the majority of people, who gets to decide um, where that line lies? And, and, and I ask that in, in, in view of the fact that right now, um, we could argue that there is maybe, and I'm still not sure that's true today, actually, as much as it may have been a few decades ago, or at least a decade ago, that you could argue that certain voices shouldn't be given mainstream visibility. But with the tide changing and the kind of far right mood shifting increasingly towards the right, um, the, the whole pendulum towards the right, is it not the case that we could end up ourselves being on the receiving end of that argument eventually? Obviously not on the same terms, but in terms of saying, don't platform these people, they're troublemakers, you know, they're causing sedition, whatever it may be. Do you see what I mean? I do. I mean, what I would say is I, I think that's already the case. I mean, the mainstream yeah. media in America is run by centrist white people. <laughs> so like as a so as a black person, it, it's it, it, you know, the, the idea that the full realm of black political thought is currently platformed just isn't true. Right. Like there's always been a fight to to have access to these platforms in these spaces. Uh, but beyond that, though, what I would say and what I would argue is I think that the mainstream media in the United States of America, what I, I would ask for and what I think a lot of people have asked for is a level of thoughtfulness that has been absent 
mm-hmm. right? That the former president of the United States used to hold the equivalent of Klan rallies and we would broadcast them live all night. Oh my God. The camera yeah. would be sitting there on, a, on an empty podium waiting for him to show up. Mm. There is a massive space, a massive spectrum of space between responsible coverage of someone whose ideas may be dangerous and having and providing them with unfiltered access to our audience at all times. Mm. And what I would suggest is that if we look back at the coverage of the last decade, we would find our mainstream media being far closer to unfiltered access to our audience than to thoughtful productive coverage of this person and his movement. Mm. That, that again, if I know that I'm interviewing someone with the preponderance of saying dangerous things that are untrue, do I put them on live television? Probably not. And, and, and what I would also note is, we pretend as if we do not make decisions like this all the time. Somewhere today, Louis Farrakhan is giving a speech. Yes. Now, Louis Farrakhan is one of the most influential living figures in the world. It's unquestionably newsworthy in whatever market he is in that he's giving a speech. But you know what will not be on the front page of the newspaper in that town the next day? A write-up of whatever he said. Mm. And so this idea that we don't already make curatorial decisions, that we don't already decide what is acceptable for our audience to hear and what is not, right? We already make these decisions. We make them all the time. Right. And that's not to say that we might not show up and do reporting about the the about his movement or the history of what's happened or why he's showing up in our town. And we, we might do that. Right. But we make journalistic decisions. We don't just say, well, because he's in our town, instead of doing a normal newscast, we're going to cover his speech live. And again, this is one of the most important historical figures currently living. <laughs> and so and, and so I think that. But again, what we have seen is because it has been an unwillingness, I think, of a lot of the media to acknowledge the reality that what was being done by the former president was this type of nativist reactionary campaigning and a refusal to treat him any differently than another candidate. Mm. And and I think that that I think that was our failing, right? That. It is not the same to, to pretend as if covering a Barack Obama rally live is the same as covering a Donald Trump rally or not even a Barack Obama, a George W. Bush rally, a Mitt Romney rally. Right. They're fundamentally different things um, because of the content of what is being said. And I think too much of the media was too obsessed with trying to project a neutrality of what we're going to cover him just like we cover anyone else, even though he is not like anyone else. No one else is attempting to use a political campaign to drum up hatred <laughs> of people who look differently than him. Right. And, and so I, I think that we have to be willing to see the world as it is, not as we wish it was. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear that. Um, I, I, you, you open your book with um, a quote, which I think is so relevant today, even though it was written in 1965 from Ebony magazine. I was wondering if you might be willing to share it with us. Of course. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And so this, this is a, a section... Um, this is a part of an essay by the former Ebony editor, Lerone Bennett Jr., who um, was a legendary black journalist and historian. Um, and this was part of an essay that introduced a full issue that was exploring uh, this idea of the ongoing grievance in the United States of America. 
And so this is from August 1965. And Lerone Bennett Jr. writes, there was no Negro problem in America. The problem of race in America, insofar as that problem is related to packets of melanin in men's skins, is a white problem. And in order to solve that problem, we must seek its source, not in the Negro, but in the white American, in the process by which he was educated, in the needs and, com and complexes he expresses through racism, and in the structure of the white community, in the power arrangements and the illicit uses of racism in the scramble for scarce values, power, prestige, income. The depth and intensity of the race problem in America is in part a result of what a result of a 100-year flight from that unpalatable truth. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I was so struck by the quote and the kind of clarity that we get around a problem expressed in those terms in 1965, and yet it could have been written today, right? Which I'm guessing maybe part of why you shared it. I, I wanted to ask you about that unpalatable truth that uh, Lerone Bennett Jr. refers to at the end there, that the, the, the depth and intensity of the race problem in America is a, 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 in part a result of a hundred year flight from that unpalatable truth. What is the truth that white America and, and I think white majorities and other uh, nations need to be confronting more head on? Well, if you look at when Lerone Bennett was writing, this was a time amidst the, the civil rights activism, amidst following the, um, the great migration of black Americans from the South into Northern cities, and then the corralling of black Americans in Northern cities into ghettos, right? Forcing black Americans to live in places with substandard housing, education, economic opportunity. And then in which the United States of America essentially said, what's wrong with all the black people? Why do they commit so much crime? Why are they poor? Why are there, you know, and, and so there was this question in the United States about the race problem or the black problem. What are we to do with all of these poor black people who live in all these ghettos and do these things without acknowledging that the fact that those people were forced to live in those places, not by happenstance, but by decisions that white America had made, right? That when we look at the racial inequity and racial inequality in the United States of America, we don't see happenstance. We see deliberate decisions that have been made by the country's white majority and have been made over and over and over again. And so I think that that is the unpalatable truth, that we live in a society that is unjust and unequal, not because it just happens to be this way, but because generations and successive generations of people have chosen to have it be this way because they benefit from it. And so in so much as we want to solve and fix these issues, it requires white Americans and white America to no longer make those decisions and instead make a different set of decisions. Thank you so much. I think that's a, a really great kind of point for us to end on and, and hopefully for people to reflect on. Um, it's uh, at this point that we play our quick fire round um, where I ask you very um uh, simple, not questions, and ask you to respond in very short answers, if possible. Um, what I can do. What, okay. Yes, of course. Do, 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 yes, as you could. Um, what is your definition of whiteness? Hmm. 
Oh, I'm supposed to do that one word? Oh. <laughs> one <laughs> sentence one sentence will do. <laughs> I, I think hmm. I would define whiteness as a belief or, or a a set of people or things believed to be the norm or to believe to be a neutral good and defining itself that way in opposition to anyone else, right? That whiteness is in many ways the opposite of blackness and blackness is perceived as a, as a negative, is perceived as a, um, as a threat, right? And so to be white is to not be black. What is the root of racism? Hmm. The root of, in so much as we understand racism as a structural and societal concept, concept, right? Racism is a means of explaining inequalities and inequities in our society. What is the opposite of whiteness? Uh, blackness. Uh, yeah. What is one thing you wish everyone understood about racism? That racism is real, but that race is not. I think that too often we still entertain silly arguments about whether or not there's a biological reality to race, even though there very obviously is not. Is there a solution to racism? I'm not sure that there is. I, I think that there are solutions and ongoing solutions, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that there is a simple way uh, to... Um, to restructure a society that's been built on these on these ideas. Is there something we can all do to challenge racial inequality? And if so, what is that thing? Hmm. I think that each of us in the positions we are in have an obligation each day to one, be aware of the way that race manifests and has lived in our lives and the lives of those around us, and two, to endeavor to dismantle and engage the ways that those racist systems still continue to operate. That looks different for each of us, but I think that we all have a role to play. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? Um. I think that I think that theoretically such a thing would be would be achievable, but I think that we are so far from the achievement of such a thing that I, I think that very often when that ideal is invoked, it's evoked in a level of naivete, um, not actually in terms of something that we can pursue or we can achieve within our lifetimes. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? I think it can be. I think a lot of people misunderstand it or do not understand it. But I think again, I think that misunderstanding comes very often from people perceiving whiteness as a biological reality as opposed to a social construct. Wesley Lowry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for taking the time to respond to my questions. Uh, and thank you for writing this fantastic book, American White Lash, The Resurgence of Racial Violence in Our Time. If people want to purchase the book, do you have a bookstore of choice that you'd like to send them, direct them towards? Well, I, see, I will get in trouble with the other bookstores if I do that. But what I will say is it is available wherever you purchase your books, online, local booksellers, uh, the big box places. 
Um, and definitely, you know, I'm hyper responsive. And so when you read it, I'm happy to chat with anyone about it. They can find me on social media. They can find me via email. I'm all over the place. And so really looking forward to the book being out in the world, to people being able to read it and, and to start having the conversations that come from this. Amazing. Well, that just leaves me to say, Wesley Lowry, thank you again for taking the time to be with us. Thank you, of course, to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. Thank you.